Welcome to the LES Conversations podcast with me, Kate Moxley, and today I am delighted to be joined by Sonia Mainstone-Cotton as part of this special for Early Years Wellbeing Week 2022. Sonia Mainstone-Cotton is a freelance nurture consultant. She currently works in a specialist team supporting three and four-year-olds who have social, emotional and mental health needs. She also trains across the country working with children's centres, schools, nurseries, charities and churches, and Sonia has written um eight books is it Sonia maybe more just finished number 10 yeah wow 10 books that is amazing um (laughs) I remember discovering your book um oh gosh a number of years ago now promoting emotional well-being in early year staff um and I've never read anything like it about my well-being as an educator And at that time, I had been experiencing mental health um, issues. And um, I think I was I was even, you know, self-employed doing the work that I do now. But I hadn't told anyone we weren't discussing mental health or well-being in the way that we do today. And so I remember discovering that book and just trying to find you on social media and wanting to connect with you and just being like, wow, you know, why aren't we talking about this stuff? And just. I remember going through the books it's such a practical guide to like look after yourself and think about your colleagues I mean that was written in 2017 so talk to me about what has changed or what is different um all these years later what what do you think well it's a good question thank you thank you for reading it first of all that's really that's always encouraging and uh, thanks for having me on here yeah what's different in some ways I think one big thing that's different is that it's been talked about much more, which I think is really good. And um, for a long time, that was still my book was still the first one and the only one out there in early years. That's now changed. Obviously, we've got your book out there, which is brilliant. And there are, you know, there are a couple of others. And that's great. That's that's what we need. There should be lots of books on the subject. I firmly believe, you know, I, I really passionately believe that. So I think big thing for me that's changed is it's been talked about a lot more which I think is brilliant um back then it that book the one on staff well-being came off the back of children's well-being so I was I was in a really unusual position in that um Jessica Kingsley publisher asked me to write a book on children's well-being so that was my first book for adults and then there was one chapter in there on adult well-being and on the back of it they said actually we think this is you know, we ought to have a book on this. Would you do this? So, which was great. Um, And that's still vital. We know that it's not changed. In some ways, I think since the pandemic, we've seen that even more, you know, we're even more aware of it as a conversation we just had at the beginning is, you know, COVID hasn't gone away. I'm evidence of that. I've got COVID. I've had COVID this week, thankfully, first time ever. Um, but it hasn't gone away. I'm in schools and it's it's definitely in schools still at the moment. Um, and that is having an impact on our mental well-being as well as our physical well-being, I think. Um, so I think we're talking about it a lot more. I don't think it's the taboo subject it used to be. However, if I'm honest, I still have concerns about this about how seriously it's taken or not I think I think one of the dangers sometimes in schools and settings possibly schools particularly is that sometimes a danger can be 
we lay, we pay lip service to it or we might focus on it for a month or a week or something like that and put loads and loads of energy into that and then don't really go there again the rest of the time um and that concerns me i think it's something that we ought to be embedding and i know you think the same you know i know we've had so many conversations about these over the years and i know you've written about that and how important it is to embed it i think if i'm honest as well i think the more severe end of mental health still has a bit of a taboo about it mm-hmm. and probably the reason why i first got involved in thinking about mental health and well-being was my mum has bipolar so you know i grew up as a child with a mum with really really severe bipolar and that was really difficult you know i was a young carer and all those sorts of things um now, her family still don't talk about mental health. You know, I've still been at a big family funeral a few weeks ago, which was really difficult because it was still the elephant in the room that nobody would talk about. Mum has severe mental health, you know. So I think, and I'm not convinced that my extended family are alone, are the only ones in the country who still don't really talk about it. So, I, you know, I think there are, I still think there are some difficulties around mental health. And I think we still feel embarrassed about it Mm -hmm. um if I'm honest what I really loved about your work Kate is your honesty about how things are for you and you know and saying it as it is um and that's I think that's important I think we all need to do that more but I think so I think it's moved and it's shifted because more people are talking which is great I think the shift in more honesty which is brilliant but I think there's still a way to go. Sorry, that's a bit rambling. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> no, no, it made absolute sense. And it's really interesting, I suppose, hearing you share that personal lived experience of having a parent with bipolar and having to, yeah, as you say, be a carer and also, you know, how that will have, I suppose, framed your mm. you know, whole life experience and how it's developed, um, you know, lots of different things within your life. And, I suppose one of the big things that you touch upon there is that, you know, yes, it's being spoken about more widely and we talk about it, but actually what we can acknowledge is for lots of people, they still think mental health means mental illness Mm. and it's gradually shifted and changed. And, you know, sometimes I will work with people as I'm sure you will, and people have a very good understanding and and sometimes very self-aware. And that's the point, isn't it? That not everyone, you know, lives free from mental health issues but sometimes you like to pretend that everybody does Mm -hmm. and actually when we don't you know talk about or you know include um people who are living with disabilities or neurodivergent conditions or um you know mental health conditions or physical health conditions disability whatever it might be we're just saying that everybody lives free from illness and we know that's not the case and so we, you know, we we miss out a, gr- a whole group of people by just assuming we're always well all the time. And so actually it's also making space for those people who work in educational spaces or, you know, organisations all across the country and the world who actually live with mental illness and are happy, healthy and well. But of course, like lots of other people may experience moments of ill health. And then, you know, it takes support and understanding from everyone around them in the community, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. And it's that ongoing dialogue, isn't it? Like you said, it's, you know, recognising, I think, 
something I've often put in my books is, you know, we all, like you said, we all have mental health and our mental health is going to be different on different days. Sometimes it's going to be higher, sometimes it's going to be lower and that's okay. I think it's also important to learn how to recognize in ourselves what's going on for ourselves. So I know certainly for me, and one of the things I do quite a lot in training is get people to think about you know, doing those check-ins, how are you today? You know, and often we will ask each other, oh, how are you today? And you just kind of glibly go, oh yeah, I'm okay, you know. But actually having that honest look at yourself and recognizing in yourself, how do I know? What's the warning signs for me when actually I'm not, my mental health isn't in such a good place today? What does that look like? Um, Because for all of us, our warning signs are different and it's being able to recognize so what are mine? You know, what are the what are the signals to me? I think our bodies are incredible at telling us when things aren't quite right, mm-hmm. but we're not always very good at honing in and hearing that. Yeah. And that's a real skill, I think. And it's yeah. something we all need to work at. And, you know, yeah. I hang on about it all the time. Did I see myself coming down with COVID? No, I didn't. <laughs> Even though I was shattered in the week and all of that, you know, and there was COVID around, I didn't make that link. So, you know, we're all guilty of it. It's Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're right. We're not attuned to noticing and connecting what's happening in our, with our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions to physically what those sensations are in our body and then how that impacts on our behaviour. Because often we... Yeah, we've just not been most of the time we've not been taught about those things but now we are trying to teach those skills to young children through you know and especially in the work that you know that you're doing you know supporting children with their um, emotional literacy being in touch with what those sensations are in the body and how that links to you know what's happening and as educators as as humans sometimes you know we're not always so good at doing that Um, and I suppose my, my second question then is um, in the training that I deliver, um, you know, when I'm working with people, I ask people like, why are you here today? What do you want to get out of you know, this session? And time and time again, um, especially when it's leaders and managers um, in the session, they'll say they're here to support other people. They want to know how to support others um, and they want to know the signs and symptoms of mental ill health to look for. And, you know, that's amazing because five years ago, as, as we said, we weren't talking about these things. However, I always try to encourage people to think about their own self. So, mm-hmm. yes, it's great. We want to look out for the people, but we can't do that if we're not taking care of ourselves. So I, I always encourage people um, to think about what they're like when they're well. So how do we know what signs and symptoms of ill health to look for if we don't know what it feels like when we have got those high levels of mental well-being mm. and we are feeling, you know, really resilient and really confident and able to deal with, like, you know, what life throws at us, you know? Um, and so, yeah, my question then to you is, especially through the, the work that you do, the books that you write, I mean, I also follow, follow you on Instagram. So I see the open water swimming, the foraging, making your own, um, you know, produce, the, the sunset walking, um, you know, the forest bathing, all of these really wonderful things. And it seems as though, you, you know, that's a real intrinsic part of your everyday life. Um, and for lots of us, it's hard to find that balance. So, you know, when we're thinking about supporting educators, thinking about their own well-being, rather than looking for the signs of ill health to start with, how can we better take care of our own well-being? 
I think I think that's a really good question and it's um for me it's about knowing yourself what make what is it that brings you joy what you know so what is it that brings you joy so for anybody who kind of knows me I'm a swimmer I swim every morning I swim Monday to Friday in a pool every day if I was by the sea I would be oh I'd be swimming in 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 cold water it would be my preference but anyway Monday to Friday I swim every day and swimming isn't I mean, it's exercise and that's really important, but actually swimming is more than that for me. Swimming is like really, really crucial. I've learned, um, I took up swimming about probably 10 years ago now. And I realized within about six months, actually it was a really important way of just being able to let go. It was quite a mindful experience. It's just, it's what makes me feel really good. And if I don't swim, I find that quite hard. So swimming is important, but cold water swimming has really helped now that's partly probably partly an age thing if I'm honest you know I hit I hit perimenopause about five years ago and suddenly discovered actually cold water was quite good (laughs) quite liked it um but I I really really like it so when I know I'm feeling stressed I know that if you get me in cold water it will release in such a way that it's just incredible now I'm not saying everybody needs to go and throw themselves into cold water but for me I've learned that really really helps and that's just through the experience you know there is something there is something about getting in cold water and I love it now because it's beginning to get cooler again which is great at this point in the year so I like swimming in the summer but it's uh it's not the same Um, there is something about getting in that cold water and your brain immediately goes whoa what are you doing to me but it then quickly everything quietens down any you know any voices in the head any kind of thoughts and whatever just quieten down and your body is just in that moment we talk about mindfulness and you know and I've trained in mindfulness and things but actually I haven't found anything as mindful as getting myself into a body of cold water um so it's learning what works for you and yes you know I do foraging and things and those things are partly being outside I really like being outside I'm massively into gardening again I've learned that being outside being in the garden makes me feel good you know I can lose myself in my greenhouse or digging the earth or whatever it is and the same with foraging as well so it's doing things that are make me feel good you know from a completely selfish point of view they make me feel good but it's also because I'm now going into my eighth year of working with the children in the job I'm doing so I work with children with very high-end social emotional mental health needs it's a really intense job they're all four-year-olds they're an absolute delight they are brilliant but it's quite intense I never know what I'm going to encounter it's about supporting the child and supporting the school and being in schools as anybody will realize is becoming more and more of a challenge it's really hard um it's intense and I need to the only way I can do my job is by looking after myself and I know that and I learned that from years and years ago when I didn't look after myself and I became very unwell and well with a what they thought at the time was a brain tumor. It wasn't. Um, it was stress, which caused major problems in my head. But I that taught me quite a lot. So I guess over the years, by experience and by trial and error, I've worked out what works for me. And when I don't do those things, I don't feel good. You know, mm-hmm. so this week I haven't been swimming because I can't be at the pool because I have COVID. 
And I know that's not great for me. You know, I will be back in the pool as soon as I can. And I will get back into some cold water really, really soon because I know I just know it intrinsically that that's what makes me really feel really good. So my message to people usually is work out what makes you smile, what brings you that moment of joy and do it regularly. Yeah, I mean, it sounds wonderful listening to you. And um, my friend mentioned uh, Wim Hof to me earlier this year. Uh, and uh, I'd not heard of his work before, but it's around breathing, isn't it? And cold water yeah. therapy. And actually, you don't even need, a, you know, a pool or um, the sea or any yeah. open water. You can go and stand in your own cold shower. And, yeah. and there's more benefits, isn't there, to uh, that kind of cold water therapy so yeah really interesting listening to you describe those moments that give you peace and um I suppose mindfulness those moments to kind of restore and re- rebalance yourself and it's hard to achieve that in a in a busy world isn't it when often we're juggling work and family and commitments and so often our own well-being is, is way down on the list isn't it um so I suppose as we kind of continue to think about different things that we might be doing to take care of our well-being, what you said there, it links to, um, I was listening to a podcast uh, by Dr. Rogan Chatterjee, um, his podcast I've recently discovered in his book. And what is so interesting for me is what you just talked there about joy. What he talks about is that often we think that success is what is going to bring us that joy and happiness. And actually, we realise that it doesn't matter um, how much money we earn or what we've got going on if we haven't got those elements in our life that bring us joy and happiness, whether that's a meal with our family, whether that's snuggling up, watching a film, whether that's open water swimming, whatever it might be. They're the moments that really bring us joy and happiness. And I suppose it's interesting, isn't it, that not all of us can... And even though I know lots of things to do, does it mean I can always do them or I can always remember them or I'm always able to do them all the time? No, I agree. I mean, one of the things that I've done is I've got on my on my desktop, I've got um, a happiness board, which sounds really daft, but it's a it's just a photo board on my laptop that's on my desktop that. I can click on there and remind myself of what is it that brings me joy. And there's a mix of things on there. So, you know, yes, of course, there are. Um, places that I've swam there's photos of friends and family of being in the garden just some really simple things and it means I can look at it and go okay what is it today I need you know so I don't I don't live by the sea so I I don't go cold water swimming as much as I'd like to I, I, I go a lot but not not as much as maybe I would want but I do have a garden and I I do live out in the countryside so I could just go for a walk or I can just go and um bring a flower inside you know this morning I brought in some sunflowers inside because I knew I had sunflowers still in the garden and I knew they brought me joy and I knew that would help so it's but that reminder is quite good and that's quite often something I've talked to people about is you know you're right when we're when we're feeling really low or when we're having a really hard time sometimes it's really hard to recall those memories I read some research a while ago in a book called Blue Mind where it talked about um obviously it was about water because it was blue mind but it was it was um it was talking about how you our brain holds on to those negative things so when things are really difficult our brain kind of holds those immediately mm-hmm. whereas to remember things to remember the joyful things we need to kind of embrace it 
it's about 14 seconds. I think there's kind of various figures around it, but it's roughly that time. And I found that really helpful. So for me now, when I'm doing something that I'm really enjoying, I actively say to myself, sometimes in my head or sometimes out loud, wow, this is just amazing. This is incredible. In that moment of really trying to take it on. And actually, that's really helped me because I can recall, you know, as we're talking, I could quite happily bring to mind, it's usually swims, but things, experiences I've had, and that, you know, I can almost even feel the water, think about the temperature, all those sorts of things, and just really bring it clearly to mind. So I think that's a useful thing to remember when yeah. we're in that moment of joy. I think sometimes we can brush it off, whereas that, you know, and it's, it's a bit like a gratitude practice. It's something I talk a lot about as well as gratitude practice. So, you know, in those moments of when you're really happy, just saying to whether you believe in, in anything or not, that sense of gratitude and going, wow, that's amazing. I'm really grateful for that. And yeah. that's again, embracing those moments of joy, I think. And I think shit yeah. reshifting our mind to see that joy can be found in lots of different places at lots of different times. And it doesn't have to be about expense and money and big things it can be those moments absolutely because not you know as, as we're talking you know not everyone has a garden do they not everyone has access to things that some of us take for absolute granted and you know again thinking in ways in which we can do small things that bring great joy so um, you know what you were describing there is is actually how I start off my sessions by our brain is wired to make us to keep us safe it isn't wired to keep us happy all the time and so trying to think of good little things that we've enjoyed over the last week sometimes sends people into a state of panic because our busy lives mean we can't think of, of, of many good little things moments of joy that you've just described and actually that's because we've kind of also been taught that in this kind of you know materialistic world that a big you know something to be joyful and happy about has to be a big thing So, yeah, it doesn't have to be about those big things. It can be little moments of joy. But often we think it is big things such as, I don't know, going to a spa day or, you know, spending a lot of money on on, on something, going out with people or whatever, when actually a little cup of tea all by yourself when no one else is around, you know, a hot bath or going for a run or a walk or someone actually saying, paying you a compliment saying something nice to you all of those little moments you know bring us joy and you know we have to make room for them and like find positive nourishing sustaining elements of everyday life otherwise our brain will just get wired by the negative stuff especially if we've had negative adverse experiences traumatic experiences you know throughout our lifetime yeah definitely it's fine it, yeah i think you're right finding those moments find those small moments of joy regularly yeah, really, really does make a, a really big difference. Um, I suppose then I, it leads me on to kind of thinking about um, knowing that educator well-being is inextricably linked to the well-being of children in, in their care. We're currently at a place where, um, again, we're perhaps going to be challenging and opposing the government's view on changing ratios in early years, just at a time when we are still trying to find some balance and um, to having to work through COVID 
um, and everything that's been happening in education and earlier settings over the last couple of years. So children need more of us, not less. And and educators for ourselves, you know, again, we we, you know, need to really take extra care of, of our well-being because we know and, and I talk about it in, in my book and I know you talk about about stress within your book around you know how much of a difference that can make to the people that you're working with and indeed to the children so kind of what top tips would you give educators for you know taking care of their own well-being because recent research from the Anna Freud Foundation found that educators are feeling overwhelmed and stressed with supporting children with their social emotional mental health needs and that was probably before the pandemic but also coming through it as well and seeing the difference in children's you know uh, behavior and emotional well-being Um, and so so some different tips on how educators can you know support children if things are becoming um, overwhelming because often educators aren't getting they don't get you in their setting. They don't, we don't get nurture workers everywhere. We don't always get the best help from our local authorities, depending on where we are in the country. So what support or what tips could you offer educators for their own and supporting the needs of children in their care? I think the first thing to say is I'm noticing, and maybe that's just the children where I am, but probably not. I'm noticing a higher rise in children, in young children being anxious. And I think it's showing itself in different ways. I think we're really seeing the impact. So the children that I get, so I work with four-year-olds, they've just started school. So these are the children who were two when COVID hit. Okay. So they've missed out on a huge amount of really significant, uh, important early experiences particularly about socializing with other children and we're really noticing it this year so I'm we I think we're seeing a bigger cohort of children who are really anxious and I think the anxiety is showing itself not entirely but for some children it's showing itself in that um they're becoming much quieter. We're seeing higher numbers of children with selective mutism or just, you know, that those kind of speech. We're hearing a lot about speech and language issues. I'm not hearing many people talking about selective mutism, whereas this year we are seeing a big problem with selective mutism in our cohort. Um, we're seeing children who are really struggling to leave their parents, who don't know how to play with the other children, all those sorts of things, all those social things. And um, so one thing I would say to staff is be really gentle. And that sounds really daft. Mm -hmm. And you kind of think, well, of course, we're early year staff, so we are gentle. But actually, I don't think our early year settings are always as gentle as maybe they can be. I think we're often quite busy. We have a lot going on. Mm -hmm. Children who are very anxious don't necessarily need busy, loud things I think we need to quieten down a bit. I think we just need to tone it down, go slower, <laughs> go a bit more gently. I think, and that's, I think, for children and for ourselves, I really do. Um, so my work this year that I'm already that I'm planning is a much gentler way than it may have been in other years with other with other children. Not that I'm rough or anything. Thing, but do you know what I mean it's that slower gentler way of working um use emotion language with children absolutely you know use the words so if you can see they're feeling anxious and worried use those words and that's okay all of those sorts of things um but I think another thing is 
go with where the children are at. So if a child isn't yet ready to do things, that's okay. Slow down with it. That's a definite one. But another question that I often say to staff is at the end of the day, if you're feeling really stressed, a question to ask yourself is, is this my stress or is this the stress of somebody else? So have I taken on the child's stress? Have I taken on the stress of my colleagues or is this my stress? And that's an important question to ask because you you deal with that in a slightly different way, I think. So one really simple thing I do, it's not going to solve everything, but um, if I recognise it's a child's stress or a school stress, I use hand cream and I will do at the end of a visit, I will do a hand massage, a really gentle, intentional hand massage as a way of giving myself permission to let go. Mm-hmm. which is very simple it's not going to cure everything but it I find that quite helpful and again recognizing this is my stress or somebody else's stress and if it's my stress then it's okay what do I need to do that's you know what is it that's really stressing me and what changes can I make other changes I can make but it's also recognizing what is the stress doing in my body I really like, I know you've um, heard them, the Nagoski twins were, were interviewed by Brené Brown and wrote the book Burnout, which I find amazing. Yeah. And I often talk about their menu of ideas. So if yes. people aren't familiar with that, I would say go and have a look, go and listen to that, that talk. It's still on Brené Brown's website. Yeah. Um, but they have a menu of ideas and their argument is you need to release stress every day. But Mm -hmm. different days, you're going to want different things. So, you know, one day it might be you need a really good laugh or you need a good cry or you need to go for a run. I mean, they have a whole a whole host of menu, but that's worth looking at. And again, that's what I encourage a lot of people to do to kind of go, okay, at the end of the day, what are you going to do to release your stress today? Um, And that doesn't even need to be for a long thing. It can just be for 10 minutes. But I, I found that really empowering when I heard that. And I yeah. think that made quite a shift for me. Um, so, there, you know, it's such a big area and those are just tiny ideas. But I think hopefully they're just a few ideas that might help people to think a bit. I, I thought they were really interesting, really helpful, really thought provoking. I loved what you were saying about is this my stress or somebody else's? I can remember the first time somebody said to me, or raise that to me as that actually some of what I was feeling uh, you know as you discuss as we mentioned earlier like how is stress showing up in my body like what is going on and actually that belongs to somebody else and it again goes back to when, when I'm around people when I'm with people or when I'm thinking about you know when I'm at my best, when I've got those high levels of well-being, like what have I been doing? Where have I been? Who have I been with? How I've been taking care of myself? And again, I suppose in in retrospect, in the way uh, when I've got low mental well-being, but that thought of this stress sometimes isn't mine and I've taken it on. And I loved that idea of just something so simple as the hand cream because it's a bit of a a physical mental release of I'm leaving this behind. I'm leaving this part of my day. But yeah, the work of Emily and Amelia Nagoski around burnout, again, for me, was like, wow, I love the idea of completing the stress cycle. And, you know, again, as educators, something I've talked a lot about is stress is a real risk factor, I think, for educators um, in, in this day and age. And we are not properly taking care of ourselves and understanding, you know, the the real impact that stress can have on us and I love all those little menus of things that they talk about and one of the things 
um, I remember trying to get my daughter to hug me for 20 seconds. Yes. Because they say, if you yeah. hug someone that wants to be hugged, you know, yeah. proper hug, then yeah. it can, you know, reduce levels of stress, you know, quieten down, you know, your nervous system and mm. you know, put, keep cortisol at bay and just, and help you. And so often we discover that a lot of the things they suggest in that book through those are things that we can do in our job yeah. when you talk about slowing down and you know being with children and it makes me think of the work of Carol Garbard and Murray around illuminating care when we're honoring and modeling care and slowing down rather than all of the other busy things that have got in the way of us you know taking care of children in the most you know authentic and important of ways really mm. so really interesting to hear uh, some of those things and actually for people listening to this podcast and um, Brené Brown's podcast and the work of Emily and Amelia Nagoski are in our helpful resources section on the early years well-being week website uh, because like uh, Sonia said free personal and professional development that's you know really amazing to access so um Sonia it's been amazing to talk to you today I can't um finish our podcast without mentioning your newest book which um, you collaborated on with a friend and colleague of mine, Jamal Carly Campbell. It's around building positive relationships in early years. Um, I mean, it's a beautiful book. Um, and what is different about the book is it's literally a conversation between you and Jamal in print form. But at the end of each chapter and section are various different reflection points. Um, and I suppose, you know, what it got me thinking a lot about is, and I suppose you point it out in your in the introduction to the book pointing out the intersections of your own identities so you um as a white woman you know uh, living in bath in the rural countryside and jamal being a black man um living in in lewisham in london and i suppose our identity is a really massive part of our well-being and our self-esteem and you know that connection and belonging and so you know, the whole book is really beautiful, but I suppose I just wanted to ask you about what did what changed or developed for you around your own well-being and your understanding of, of I suppose, that process while writing the book with Jamal? <laughs> oh, I mean, it was a really interesting project to be involved in. It was an absolute joy. And we I, writing isn't always it didn't really happen by writing we had conversations we literally sat down and had three conversations and they were they were recorded via zoom and if I'm honest when we started out the book I mean we kind of I knew what you know what what the idea of the book was because we we had to submit a proposal but it was kind of one of those that we we had the kind of general themes but we didn't quite know where it was going to go until the conversations happened and I think we both we both found it a hugely beneficial reflective practice um, in having those three conversations. And um, to start with, I was quite worried because I just thought, I, I don't know where our common ground is going to be. I don't know I, if I'm honest, I really mm -hmm. don't know what common ground there is going to be. You know, I've been working in this field since I was 16 and middle-aged, middle-aged white woman, you know, Jamal has a very different background and is there going to be any common ground but actually there was huge amounts of common ground which was which was a delight to see and hear but I think it really got us both thinking about what's the same and what's different and that's okay it really helped us to think about what was really important to us so you know you talk about how our identity is really rolled up in you know in, in in who we are and what we do and 
and actually being able to really think about actually what is it that's really important to me you know stopping and reflecting on our careers which is basically really what the conversation was about I guess or partly about made to stop and think what is it that's important what's been what's been the important golden thread through our through our life you know through our mm -hmm. careers um and to see how that was similar in many ways um was just brilliant and I think it really reminded me of the importance of having conversations outside of our own little pockets you know mm -hmm. so I have conversations all the time reflective practice conversations with the people I work with but it was great to have those conversations with somebody else who's working in a very different area yeah yeah absolutely and I suppose you know there's a lot of talk around representation in the early years and I think again as a white woman myself you know I'm used to going to places going to events everyone looks like me mm -hmm. and like you said there's not much when you think about like oh you know uh, your own views and beliefs or your own window of the world like I've never really had to delve into it because I pretty much see myself represented in lots of different places and so actually when you start to notice and intentionally talk about the differences mm. with your colleagues whether that's their race their ethnicity whether that's their gender identity whether that's their physical or mental health disability or neurodivergence whatever it might be it starts to just take a different shift and a different I suppose view of the world when we're thinking about what shaped us as educators and how different that makes our experiences. Yeah. And also what that then looks like when we're working with our children, you know, yeah. and, and uh, yeah, I would just joy. I mean, that, I think, I think that was our conclusion at the end of the book was, you know, go out and have conversations with other people, go, you know, go and do that. I think, and I think sometimes we've become even more of silo in early years. Sometimes actually we're in our own little pockets and we, we're a little bit too afraid sometimes to go and talk to others maybe we're too busy or we're slightly worried that they're going to be threatened by it or whatever and it's yeah. like actually just you know yeah. just go and have those conversations it's really really important yeah and I suppose also think you know especially then as you're saying about children's well-being and and, and thinking about parents coming into our settings I'm thinking about the different cultures the different I suppose life experiences of the children families coming into our spaces I suppose often it's the dominant culture that um, I suppose that overrides everything. So you're looking at it through one lens. And actually, I suppose also what your book took me through was how those positive relationships and how acknowledging those intersections of our identities, how when we are able to do that, we're able to understand children on a different level rather than everybody, you know, this is how we all do things here. It's acknowledging that every child and family will do something different in their own home and how important it is to make space and create a place for that. Definitely. And I think I think the big the big takeaway for me in the conversation with Jamel was not being afraid to ask questions. And I think I think sometimes that can be, I think if I'm honest, particularly within the early years, I think sometimes we go through stages where we're too afraid to ask a question because we think we're going to be shouted down. And, and I do think that's happened in the past. And I, yeah. you know, I think it was, for me, it was brilliant to be able to have really honest conversations with Jamal and go, well, you know, what about this? And I'm not sure about that. Is that okay? And, and about how that's important to take that back to the workplace, you know, with the families and just honestly saying to families, I'm not sure about that. How is this for you? And, you know, what can I learn here? And, 
you know we're all talking about learning all the time and that's good that's okay but it's okay to ask questions it's that's that's all right and actually it's quite damaging if we don't so yeah yeah, it was a it was a good experience yeah I suppose it's a good place to finish here thinking about everything we just discussed there is for, for me my kind of growing understanding around well-being and you know I suppose developing a deep concept of it in our early years pedagogy and practice is that well-being really is about belonging and inclusion if we are connected to the people that we you know we're working with and sharing spaces with and we feel like we really belong there and people you know see us and value us for all of who we are and what we bring um, and also are able to see those parts of ourselves that sometimes we try to hide or like you say are, are told like they don't belong here or like you know we, we're not going to see and actually that brings about our well-being but the total well-being of a whole community really doesn't it yeah totally so yeah really beautiful so um Sonia thank you so much I could carry on talking to you all day but I'm really grateful for your time so um if people have enjoyed listening to our podcast I'll um, put a link to Sonia's books and work so you can have a look at the very uh, many books and the growing collection of Sonia Mainstone Cotton's books um so thank you so much for your time today Sonia thank you thanks for having me